0: Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of
1: it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. The working
2: class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. But the time when people trust politicians, that's over. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. Can you give us a question? I'm, I'm not going to give you a can question. You stay, can
0: you stake? You are fake news, sir. This is a Westminster bubble thing. What? Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge, the Eastminster podcast from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preissi, and also here with me, Professor Alan Finlayson. Hi, Claire. Hello. So, who have we got on the panel today?
3: Uh, okay, so we've got a couple of my favourite colleagues of all time. I've got my colleague uh, Suzanne Doyle. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, Hello. Tell people what you do.
4: So, I'm interested in UK's defence policy alongside the United States. I'm interested in the US UK relationship, in particular the nuclear relationship, uh, and issues of diplomacy and strategy as well.
3: So, bombs, all things bombs. I can
4: tell you a lot about bombs. Excellent.
3: And I've also got my colleague Lee Marsden. Lee,
1: what do you do? Hi, I'm a professor of faith and global politics, and I work on things like American foreign policy, terrorism, any security-related issues and uh, the role of religion in the world today.
0: We're going to talk about global Britain and, and foreign policy. I mean, wh- what do we mean by foreign policy?
1: Traditionally, whatever happens beyond the borders of, uh, of the country. I mean, I think these are, are now increasingly um, obsolete, obsolete terms, really. It's difficult to um, try and sort of just compartmentalise uh, what goes on in the domestic sphere. Clearly, um, something like Brexit, for example, have implications both at domestic level but also international level as well. But um, so loosely speaking, then, it is the relations that we have with other countries, um, how Britain exercises its role beyond its own borders.
0: And it feels like a really important time to be talking about this because it feels like everything's changing. If we take a long view of history, perhaps, and we make some speculation, it feels slightly
4: like the international system is in a fluctuation. Mm. Looking at Trump and what he's currently doing highlights that. So if we think about the international system, the international order that was set up after the Second World War, primarily by the US, but with the support of the UK and Western allies, there's now a lot of questioning of that system, questioning of the notions of free trade, um, questioning the kind of Bretton Woods system, questioning even the EU institution. And also the role of capitalism is mm-hmm. also increasingly being questioned. And it all plays in together. So, yeah, it does feel like this moment of fluctuation. Where are we going next? What's going to happen?
3: Um, but isn't there something specific for Britain, though? about kind of its own sense of its own role is perhaps a bit different for some other countries. That old line about Britain lost an empire but not yet found a role seems to be kind of really kind of kicking at the moment. What is the role? What's the country supposed to be doing in the world? What are we for? And we don't seem to be sure about that in any way, whether it's being part of the big security groups with all the weapons or trying to withdraw from that, not be part of all the trade and treaties and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Britain's role has always been a little bit complex uh, since the Second World War, since the the loss of empire um, east of Suez. It has been desperately in search of an identity and I think they've been able to hide behind or we've been able to hide behind our seat on the UN Security Council to delude ourselves that we are still a major power within the world and to a certain extent relied upon our reputation for fair play which was always very much exaggerated um but of of decency and so an idea that we could actually play a role if we're not any longer sort of a major superpower then at least we have some kind of moral authority in the world those old certainties are being ch- uh, are being challenged we mm-hmm. see the rise of populism mm-hmm. throughout the world and I think we are also sort of part and parcel of that sort of uh, tendency to, to shift rightwards and I think brexit is uh, is part and parcel of this so the rise of uh, populism um, which shouldn't come as, as a great surprise I think when there are uncertainties in the world we see um, I mentioned earlier that some of my interests are how religion plays out in the, in the world we've seen a shift towards fundamentalism um, people seeking certainties in a rapidly changing world. Mm -hmm. And I think we have, in a secular society here in in Britain, we have those same sort of um, challenges um, where the old certainties uh, are dead. What comes um, in its place? And people just don't know. So there's this polarisation.
0: You you mentioned the Conservatives, and and this has been something that they've been trying to get to grips with. Um, So I thought it'd be interesting to just play a bit of of Theresa May's speech from from 2017 about global Britain, and then you can kind of tell me, you know, what you thought of that, what you made of it. I want us to be a truly global Britain, the best friend and neighbour to our European partners, but a country that reaches beyond the borders of Europe too. A country that goes out into the world to build relationships with old friends and new allies alike. I want Britain to be what we have the potential, talent and ambition to be. A great global trading nation that is respected around the world and strong, confident and united at home. Okay, Alan, you look at speeches all the time. and <laughs> What did you make of that one?
3: She's straining to get it out, isn't she? Right? <laughs> she's really kind of forcing the words. I feel sorry for her. Uh, Lee said Britain hides behind the chair at the Security Council. She sounds like she literally wants to hide behind the chair. Um, I think she's... Uh, but what she's saying, what is it? Hmm. There's no. There's, it's just a recitation of the usual kinds of nostrums about a global Britain, a great power. There's nothing really detailed there. It's an image of a, that the country would like to have of itself, but it doesn't seem to me it has really any sense of what that might practically mean or how one might implement that.
0: Is it too vague, Suzanne?
4: It's too vague, and I just think the UK has been trying to do this for the last well since the end of the Second World War with the kind of change the shift in the power situation and this notion that leaving the EU will facilitate that. It doesn't historically make that much sense. I mean, the United States encouraged the UK to be part of the EU because it saw value it saw value in the EU as an institution and value in kind of the UK having that relationship. The UK has also, since the end of the Second World War, been well placed in, kind of diplomatically, in having strong relationships around the world. So for me it's too vague, okay, so you're leaving the EU, how then is this gonna strengthen your relationships further? How is this gonna make it different to what it's been before?
1: In terms of changes, I think there's, Everything is up for grabs in, in, mm. one, in one sense. Obviously, May is talking in terms of platitudes, mm-hmm. um, everybody voting for apple pie and uh, and custard, I'd have to say. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, 40 years, we've ignored our friends. We've ignored the Commonwealth completely. We're now having to try and discover... Um, who's in the Commonwealth, uh, what we can um, do in terms of trade, how we can restore that relationship which has been so damaged over over time. It's been damaged largely by people like Theresa May who decided that we don't want immigrants and uh, we don't want to stop migration in this country, particularly from Commonwealth countries.
0: But it's politically popular, isn't
1: it? It's politically popular, but it sends out this uh, distorted message um, to the rest of the world. How do you talk about friends and wanting to build relationships when you don't actually want their people to come to to this country and either work or or to stay and uh, settle here?
3: So are there countries that do have a sort of distinct mission in the world? I mean, there's obviously the big countries, the US and China, but there are small countries like Norway and other Scandinavian countries where you think, okay, their role in the world is to be the kind of brokers of peace accords or to be the kind of you know the smaller countries that you know hold the ring between other larger ones or or to be a touristy place or a kind of arty place sort of I mean is that is that am I making that up or are there countries that do have a kind of something attached to them that 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 defines their role in a specific way?
4: You can look across the water to Ireland it kind of has that role diplomatically it's um, furthered proliferation uh, non-proliferation efforts it sees itself as a kind of Peace broker in many ways, it trades on its kind of soft power. The fact that the Irish yeah. tend to be, have a sort of cultural represent, representation that helps. So there are these countries that do these roles, and the kind of and being a middle power in the world is very influential and important. You don't have to be a great power. But what I would also say here is on this issue, of the Commonwealth is does the Commonwealth countries want to have that stronger relationship with us. Mm. They are mm. former colonial countries. They are trying to move on, arguably, from that past. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot take the view that, oh, well, we're Britain, you know, we're part of the empire, of course they want to have this strong relationship with us. Yeah. No, they're a lot of them, You know, particularly India, for example, they are a rising power on their own.
0: Okay, well, let's let's hear from one of our guest speakers at UEA. We're pretty lucky. We get a lot of interesting people come and talk to us, and, and one of them who came to talk to us this year was Ben Donaldson. He's the head of campaigns at the United Nations Association UK, um, and he was very, very critical of British foreign policy. Um, so let's have a listen to, to what he had to say.
2: For me, the role of uh, a global Britain is about consistency, it's about having a coherent joined up UK foreign policy right now the UK is shooting itself in the foot on um, on one issue um, whilst a sort of uh, h- holding out a helping hand on, on another and it's, it's really inconsistent it's problematic for the UK's sort of credibility and influence uh, uh, what's happening in Yemen is a fantastic example with the UK um, <coughs> both giving to it, its development money to try and rebuild bits of Yemen which is in, in, in a terrible, uh, in the throes a terrible humanitarian catastrophe, but at the same time giving um, arms, ex, uh, exporting arms to Saudi Arabia, which is a country which is um, intervening in Yemen, and uh, all the impartial analysis is that uh, uh, suggests that the Saudi Arabia is contravening um, the arms trade treaty and causing um, many civilian ca- casualties and problems for uh, people in Yemen. So it's it's totally inconsistent.
0: So is he right? Do you, do you think he's got a point about, about the UK shooting itself in the foot?
1: Um, well... Yes, I mean uh, <laughs> shooting yourselves in the foot. Um, the problem with British foreign policy is is no different now to it's always been. It's the the charge of hypocrisy, and we will put trading relationships above any other relationship. And so, Saudi Arabia um, gets a, a pass on most things. Um, this is one of the most authoritarian. Um, human rights abusing regimes who actually um, go out of their way to try and encourage a extreme form of Islam. Um, and yet, because they are significant buyers of our weapons and other goods, um, we give them um, a pass when it comes to uh, holding them to account. The issue over Yemen, which of course was a former uh, British territory, um, is particularly uh, problematic. We have here some of the, the worst violence going on in the world at the moment. Um, we have a completely partial um, view from, from the government about uh, the wrongs and rights of that situation. Um, meantime, hundreds, thousands of, of Houthi are either starving, um, dying of disease um, or being killed uh, by armaments which we help supply and uh, support. But
0: presumably, Alan, it's politically very difficult for Theresa May to do anything about Yemen at the moment. She's got so many other things on her plate, hasn't she?
3: Well, certainly the UK government can't be thinking in very long, detailed strategic terms about its foreign policy goals while it's so self-consumed with Brexit and while it's so unclear what it's going to do economically in the future. I think it's interesting what Lee says about focusing on trading relationships first and foremost, which in lots of respects makes sense, But actually, part of good trade relationships might be doing other things apart from trade, building up friendly relationships, developing institutions, being seen as a fair dealer. But no, they're not going to be thinking about that when they're just thinking about
4: tomorrow's headline.
0: Mm. If we're selling arms to these other countries, it puts (laughs) us in a really (laughs) difficult position, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, it does. I'm going to sound cynical here, but these things always happen. Arms trades happen because, as Lee says, you know, they make money. The British economy is, in part, very reliant upon the arms industry for jobs and for uh, the economic value it brings. And I would also say, you know, foreign policy is always inconsistent. Uh, It's why I find it so interesting to research and study, because you're trying to look at policymakers and think, how do they what kind of vision have they got here? Because they just try often deal with things separately and it doesn't make sense in a coherent fashion. Is that,
3: do you see that? Is that a long term pattern? That's not just. It's now. a
4: long term yeah. pattern uh, across history because you can have notions of grand strategy and vision, but actually, when you're acting on a day to day basis, you react in part to the context of, the, of which we're in, the situations that arise, and that's very difficult then to
0: create a coherent, sensible strategy. Okay, so one of the other issues we've brought up already is Brexit. And of course, Boris Johnson's been talking about how he hopes that um, Britain's going to still play uh, a very important role in the world post-Brexit. So let's have a listen to him and then you you can react to that.
1: It makes sense for us to continue to be intimately involved in European foreign and security policy. It would be illogical not to discuss such matters as sanctions together, bearing in mind that the UK expertise provides more than half of all EU sanctions listings. We will continue to be Europeans both practically and psychologically, because our status as one of the great contributors to European culture and civilization, and our status as one of the great guarantors of the security of Europe is simply not dependent on the Treaty of Rome, as amended at Maastricht or Amsterdam or Lisbon.
0: Good old Boris, eh? (laughs) Gives a good speech, doesn't he? But um, yes, what's behind it? Is he right, I suppose, is the obvious question. Um, Yes,
1: he is. Um, In the sense, um, it's (laughs) a surprise, on that particular clip... Um, though probably <laughs> <laughs> generally not uh, not generally um, it is right that uh, Britain will continue to have a significant role. The peace of Europe is not dependent necessarily on the European Union, but it is specifically dependent upon NATO and our membership of NATO continues, and indeed most members of the EU are also members of NATO, and so that relationship is is important. Security arrangements. Um, Britain providing significant security information and sharing of information with European countries um, is a vital part of that. So I don't see any sort of uh, change really in that that relationship. We are still dependent upon the French to land our our planes um, on their aircraft carriers at the moment. Um, you know, So that relationship, again, part of being in the UN Security Council together, part of being in NATO together, um, those relationships will, will continue.
0: How much does Brexit matter in terms of our security?
4: <sighs> is
0: it possible to say, or is it just one of those unknowns?
4: I think it's an unknown. It depends on the deal that's reached. I think Lee raises an important point, though, that we've reached a point in the kind of international system where there are these very firm institutional ties between people and between organizations uh, that have created what perhaps we could see as a security community. So the ties between the UK and other NATO countries, it runs kind of deep down into the kind of technical policy, uh, military, levels. And this creates kind of a robust, say, ties between them, which Brexit isn't going to break. In other ways, it depends upon what might happen in terms of intelligence sharing. We're still not sure there what will happen. The UK has a very key role in that in the world, partly because it's kind of very strong relationship with the US on this area. I mean, I love that clip because he says at one point, we will not move psychologically or... I am thinking, you can't move the island, can you? I mean, I know some of them might want to.
3: So am I wrong as a non-expert to kind of worry that, that actually he is wrong in the sense that we will move psychologically and are moving psychologically away from, from Europe? But it's, it's subtle things. It's people thinking, I do see this in young people, sometimes students, that they, maybe Europe doesn't matter so much in British life, maybe we don't need to know that much about it or learn languages and so forth. And we'll begin to withdraw from involvement. In, in the the institutions of European life more broadly. Clearly not being the EU means we won't be in various meetings and committee meetings and people won't be employed in some of the institutions that you're talking about. Mm. And we will slowly drift. Is that am, am I the, the, making that the up? There's a, there's
1: a drift. And I guess it also depends how you define security if you're looking at um, Security broadly defined. If you look at economic security, if you look at intelligence, um, you look at uh, the internet, um, our personal data, those sorts of issues are are more likely to be at risk. In terms of the security of Britain, I I don't fear for the um, the physical security of of Britain as such. Um, The biggest danger to um, Britain's security Um, is the same danger that there is today, that um, a decision was taken a number of um, decades ago now to outsource our foreign policy to the United States. And uh, we are the add-on to American foreign policy. Um, So we have very few initiatives of our own. It is um, Me Too in terms of uh, following American uh, American foreign policy. That has had effects in terms Mm -hmm. of um, blowback in, in terms of mm-hmm. how um, we're seeing, and that is unlikely to change. There are security implications and threats though for the rest of Europe um, which I think by Britain's withdrawal from the, the EU and uncertainty across with far right parties emerging as well, there's a lot of flux and insecurity within the EU itself mm-hmm. which could become sort of prime pickings for uh, uh Emboldened uh, Russian Federation. Okay, well, so those dangers in Eastern Europe, I think, are, are made worse by Britain's withdrawal. We got from Brexit to Russia in four <laughs> steps.
0: <Yay. laughs> well, let's hear again from um, Ben Donaldson, head of campaigns at United Nations Association UK, and he's worried about conflict as well and where we could end up.
2: I think um, the, the, the worst sort of enemy um, for the UK is 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 apathy, and um, the UK's interests are so sort of dependent. We, t- we talk about sort of like the pandemics that the UK could be exposed to, climate change. We talk about um, the se- uh, security issues with regards to terrorism um, and with regards to um, <coughs> to um, military operations, and for example, that are in the east of Europe. Um, th- the period of 72, 73 years of, um, of um, relative global peace, and certainly in, in Europe, the, the peace that we've enjoyed for so long the idea that that is inevitable needs to be challenged. It's not inevitable. If the international system falls apart because we're not thinking about the international system enough, then actually we could we could um, find ourselves returning to uh, a situation of conflict, even in Western Europe.
0: So he's worried about conflict, Suzanne Dolly. You? I'm always worried about conflict. Um,
2: Isn't conflict good for business? <laughs>
4: point
3: of view, but more to write about. I
4: don't want to die from a nuke. Thanks. Um, Again, if we take a long view of history, conflict reoccurs. This notion that the peace that we've seen in Europe is unique, partly is, but it's partly in a historical view. It doesn't take into account the period of peace that existed between the Congress in Vienna and the First World War. I think for me, my real concern though currently is that if we take a broad view of security, the real issues I think we're going to face, are climate change, etc past pandemics. What is needed to deal with these issues is a kind of broad-based international approach. What we're currently are going to be seeing in the international system is a return towards isolationism, a return to moving away from these institutions. We're seeing it in the US, we're seeing it in the UK, we're seeing it in other places, we're seeing a rise in right-wing politics which I find really concerning as well. The system has to change. There's clearly something going on at the moment which is leading to a lot of inequality, a lot of disenfranchisement with the kind of international system, the way it's working. It's how it changes, I think, is crucial. And my concern is it's going towards this right wing isolationist. Is part
3: of that, sort of what you hinted at earlier, that that countries that haven't been central to the international system in the past, like India, are now big powers economically? politically, militarily, they're kind of pushing at getting in things that sh- other countries are, are coming up behind them as well. I mean, it's part of the tension that the older powerful countries want to defend their interests against them, or is it more chaotic than that?
4: I think it's more chaotic. That is part of it, though, that there is kind of rising powers, China, India, many others, who want to be part of this system, want to shape it to suit kind of their vision. And it's, OK, well, how does that happen? How do is it accommodated? How does it change? I think the format of the Security Council needs to change. It has its uses. It brought buy in from the great powers at the end of the Second World War. They had to be given a veto power to ensure that they kind of supported the institution. But now something clearly needs to change. It needs to change on the international level in terms of letting other countries be part of the international system, international order that the UK and US were very much part of formulating. But I think it also really needs to happen at a domestic level Mm -hmm. that kind of, as I said, there's a lot of inequality, problems of globalization. How do we deal with these issues? What needs to change,
0: Lee Marston?
1: A lot needs to change (laughs) in terms of the whole whole system. I mean, I'm just thinking really in terms of uh, what won't change, and I don't think the UN Security Council is going to change. I don't think Turkey's vote for Christmas. But uh, I think what does need to happen is there does need to be right across all institutions a greater listening to ordinary people and to be cognizant of the struggles that people have, uh, particularly since the 2009, uh, sorry, 2008 uh, financial crash, Mm -hmm. um, you know, where people have just been marginalised and that pain is still sort of uh, is still there.
3: Can we bring it back to where we started then <coughs> which was this question about britain's sort of identity its existential sense of itself in in the world because it, it seems to me that that the kind of pro brexit argument that brexit creates an opportunity for the country to go on a new path eh, eh, that's presumably true in the in the most general sense there is actually an opportunity for the country to think about what role it wants to do and that's an opportunity not just for the governmental level of foreign policy and institution building but also Culturally for, for British, English, Scottish, Welsh, Irish people to think, okay, who are we? What is our, is our role in the world? And I wonder if there's something for people to do, to think about that, what, what contribution they want to make to the world as UK citizens, as well as thinking about you know, in the future, after the Brexit struggles are calmed down in some respects, can we begin to think about a changed role for the Britain? What, what should that be? What could that be? If we were thinking more positively, are there things that the country has to offer the world, or should we just retire and, and say let others get on with it? We did our bit. The sun now sets.
1: I mean, I think you, I think you're right in terms of, um, you know, this does present an op- a, an opportunity. Um, the difficulty, of course, is because there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen that those voices get filled by uh, people on the, the the far right and sort of have a, a an agenda of sort of uh, perhaps restored empire or sort of certainly. Um, trying to have a very strong role for Britain within the world. But I think, you know, if we actually think about what Britain claims to be on the side of the underdog um, for fairness, for justice, um, we've never, ever fulfilled that sort of remit. But here's an opportunity to actually do so, to actually think about how we can contribute um, to society, as indeed the Scandinavian countries did in terms of trying to negotiate peace settlements and things like that actually have that role about making a, a fairer uh, more decent world but we have to believe that and we can't uh, hide behind the hypocrisy that we've uh, <laughs> pursued for, for generations so
3: what about at the kind of at the grassroots level is it as it were because you know there's obviously it seems to me that part of what's happening at the moment is a generational split mm. and there are younger people who want to play some part in the world and they are quite outward looking in, in terms of the places they know about in the world and where they want to go do you think there's a possibility that we might see a different sort of relationship between Britain and the world led by just individuals going out and wanting to do things and work in different places and be part of broader change? Or am I hopelessly utopian?
4: I'm hopeful of that as well. And I don't know that it's generational. I think it's also the fact that we do live in a very interconnected world, which we, you know, the world Mm. has completely changed in my lifetime I mean, I'm classed as millennial, but I remember dial-up, you had dial-up connection and that was really high-tech. And, and now we can talk to anyone from around the world. We can build communities around the world. People can travel. But this creates opportunities that we ha- and will change the world in ways I think we haven't seen yet. It is a recent development, say so t- 20 years or so, these changes have really occurred. If we think of the revolutions that have happened in the past, printing press the telephone the internet it <laughs> has knows? completely changed the international system
0: okay so it could be a positive let's let's hope for a, a positive future i should probably say something cheesy
3: like with such inspiring teachers <laughs> young people will click yeah okay yeah. Say that.
0: <laughs> all right thank you all very much it's been a really really interesting chatting to you um If you want to hear more or or to read more, you can go to the Eastminster website, uh, ueapolitics.org. Our podcast, Politics at the Edge, is produced. It's a production of the Politics Department from the University of East Anglia, hosted by me, Claire Precy, and Professor Alan Finlayson. If you want to hear more episodes, you can subscribe to us. Quick thanks to the BBC, Sky and ITV for our news clips and our intro. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.